come to me I hear a sound Is it like traffic Headed out of this town Hello and welcome to KUCI in Irvine 88.9 FM. I'm Sibel Kaler and this is Office Hours, the show where I bring you the stories from all over UCI's uh, professors and grad students and their research. Today we have Dr. Jonathan Alexander, a professor in uh, English and Gender and Sexuality Studies, here to talk about his new book. Dr. Alexander, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So um, what are the research interests you tend to focus on as a professor of English and Gender and Sexuality Studies? So most of my research over the last 25 years has focused on how people write, particularly how they learn to write and explore what writing means in digital and multimediated environments. Uh, more recently, uh, within the last decade, I've turned a lot more attention to popular culture and fan fiction and fan media production and how young people in college and right after college actually use a lot of their writing skills to, to create uh, alternative worlds, explore some of their favorite characters in popular culture, uh, think even personally and politically about the worlds they want to inhabit and how they can use writing not only to explore, but possibly to enact and make those worlds real for them. Wow, um, that's so fascinating. I never thought I would say this on the air, but <laughs> I do um, enjoy and write fan fiction myself or Excellent. have <laughs> over the years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fan fiction and fan media are wonderful ways in which people are using pre-existing content, narratives, characters produced by a corporate culture industry, but using those characters, that content in ways that help them think about topics, issues that are really important to them that they're not always seeing in the mass media. Yeah, I always liked the very um, direct, free, kind of uncensored, uh, uncorporate like way it's just sort of spread around. Mm, absolutely. Um, so going to your latest book, um, Science Fiction and the Dismal Science, it is a collection of essays edited by Dr. Alexander, Gary Westfall, Howard V. Hendricks, and Gregory Benford. These essays discuss how science fiction comments on economics. Uh, what led you to this topic? Uh, that's a good question. So I've uh, long been interested, as I said, in popular culture and and in science fiction in particular, it, science fiction was one of my first first reading loves. I, I, I loved it. And I'm basically a nerd at heart. I'm an SF nerd. Uh, and I realized that so much of the stuff that I was working on as a scholar, uh, particularly in fan fiction, fan media, young adult fiction, and, and other ways in which people were reading and, and learning about writing, uh, so much of that material overlapped with science fiction. So I've steadily been writing and researching more and more about science fiction in particular. And it occurred to me as I was talking with some colleagues and some science fiction writers that one of the interesting things about science fiction is how it helps us imagine futurity, what the world might actually become. And it's very hard to imagine futurity without asking some interesting questions about economics how and resources and how do people make a living and what kind of life can be made in the future. And that science fiction has long been grappling with that interconnection. When we think about the future, when we think about technology, we're also in some ways thinking about 
how, how, how do we survive? And then how do we thrive? So in the spring of 2018, some colleagues and I uh, mounted a conference uh, that dealt primarily with this issue, with this topic, science fiction broadly. But what does the future look like from a science fiction imagination? And over the course of the two-day conference, we realized that so many of our participants were really starting to grapple with that question of economics and how do we imagine economic futures and what does science fiction have to tell us about that. So after the two-day conference, we invited the participants in the conference to contribute to this volume and voila, book appears. Wow. Yeah, science fiction is one of my favorite genres and I never even considered how it could, um, how it relates to economics. Um, but of course it always comments on society being the nature of the genre. Um, could you explain the term from the title, the dismal science? <laughs> sure, dismal science. That's actually a very old term uh, coined uh, by oh, probably about 200 years ago by Thomas Carlyle, who uh, was a Scottish writer and thinker. And at the time, he was very concerned by reports about population growth. So even 200 or so years ago, people were really thinking about how do population densities actually impact resource distribution? That is, as populations continue to grow, how do we feed everybody? And he coined the term dismal science specifically to refer to economics, because at that time, a lot of the predictions he was looking at had to do with growing population, but decreased ability to feed that growing population. So he was very concerned that the future of the world might not be so pretty. And economics was unfortunately the science, as it were. It was the mode of inquiry, the field of knowledge that was already starting to alert people to the fact that we were going to have an imbalance between population and our ability as a society to care for that population. Right. And so dismal. <laughs> yeah, seems even more dismal here in 2020. Mm, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to say that the more things change, <laughs> the more they stay the same. But this is precisely, I think, why so many contemporary science fiction writers, but also folks who study science fiction, have begun to see that SF has a lot to tell us about how people are imagining a future of a world of not only increased population, but also increased economic precarity, where it's harder and harder for people to figure out how do you make a living under the current political regime and economic regime of capitalism. What are some of your favorite essays from the collection? Oh, I'm not going to choose favorites. <laughs> I mean, I really appreciate uh, the, the collection as a whole because so many of the pieces touch on different different ways in which uh, writers and thinkers are trying to grapple with uh, how can we envision a future that is, is not just dystopic, but that actually tries to imagine what would it be like to have a sustainable future in which people can actually uh, have their basic needs met, but also enjoy some modicum of prosperity and self-agency and self-determination as well. So I think all of the essays are grappling with that, and I think the collection as a whole speaks to that. So uh, there's obviously you know my favorite essay, which would be mine, but uh, <laughs> otherwise I won't choose a favorite, but thanks for asking. Do you believe that this genre um, is particularly suited to 
critique the economy more than um, maybe other fiction genres? It's a great question. I think a lot of scholarship that we are seeing in literary studies right now is attempting to understand the relationship between literature and the imagination of different kinds of stories and storytelling and economic realities. And so I've got many colleagues who are working on this issue across a variety of genres. Uh, we are creatures uh, who are surrounded by economies. Our lives are in many ways determined and conditioned by economic realities. And so it makes a lot of sense that our art would as well, even if it's not explicit or overt, that even implicitly or unconsciously, as it were, economic realities are always present uh, and, and potentially discernible in cultural products, whether that be films or works of, of literature. Uh, I think science fiction, precisely because it often imagines futurity, it tries to imagine many times what future the future looks like, gives itself over to a more explicit grappling with economic realities. So for instance, one of the things that makes the Star Trek universe so interesting uh, is that it, in imagining the Federation, the sort of United Federation of Planets, imagines a future after money. And so the whole Star Trek uh, franchise, as it were, is built on this imagination of a future post-money in which other things, other ideas, other ideals have replaced the sort of greedy capitalist accumulation of wealth. Now, part of that is dependent upon, uh, at least in some of the most recent Star Trek stories, uh, the creation of replicator machines that actually can produce uh, some of the basic things that people need, food, clothing, and other items as well. So it's an interesting vision of the future that is fundamentally about economic relations. Where do we get our stuff? How do we make a living? And it's trying to imagine can we survive? What would, the, what would the universe look like? What would our worlds look like if all of a sudden the acquisition of money was not the primary motivator, but we were focusing on other dimensions of human and alien experience? <laughs> wow. Interesting. What, just off the cuff, um, what would be your thoughts on the Star Wars universe <laughs> and all the trade wars and whatnot. Yeah, well, that's, again, that's an interesting version of what I was talking about because even in something like Star Wars, you get bubblings up of these economic realities. And it's very hard to imagine the future without also commenting on the present. Uh, any of our imagination of the future is going to be rooted in current contemporary economic realities and political realities. And so there's definitely a way in which the Star Wars series uh, show us some of the contemporary things that we're, we're dealing with, trade wars, for instance, and and, and, and how do you navigate uh, uh, some of those political complexities? It's clearly not the focus of the, of the narrative, and I personally don't consider Star Wars science fiction. It's more maybe science fantasy or even just fantasy in some ways. It, it, it really is a kind of uh, sort of Western in space. At least that's how it started in the, in the late 70s. But... You know, it is certainly the case that in Star Wars you get some interesting commentary about, as you said, trade wars, but also the ongoing presence of slaves, of slavery 
in the particular uh, republic and then in the empire. And so when I watch those, those movies, I can't help but imagine, wow, there is a galactic republic, and yet even within that galactic republic, there is ongoing economic inequality, there is ongoing you know, trade wars, as you point out, but also in some of the far reaches of that galaxy, slavery. And so, in a way, that Star Wars reality represents a, a very contemporary reality. It sort of maps onto uh, our contemporary world situation, which is very economically uneven, with some pockets of pseudo-democratic and republic kinds of governmentality uh, alongside um, ongoing slave trades and gross economic inequality. So it's it's unfortunate. Uh, it, the, Star Wars, in other words, doesn't really imagine a better future. Uh, it, it creates a set of fantasy narratives that are, in reality, that's all too familiar. Definitely. Uh, your essay in the book was mm-hmm. titled uh, Counterfeit Worlds Simulacron 3 on Film and Television. Um, could you give us just sort of a summary of what that is about? Sure. So I, I loved working on this piece because I like looking back at older science fiction novels, particularly some material that might have been forgotten. And so I wrote a piece about Daniel Galloway's Simulacron 3, which is a novel from the 1950s. It's incredible. It's actually about a virtual reality uh, machine in which marketers test out different kinds of marketing strategies on their virtual reality subjects in the machine. But what gets interesting is that the the people, quote unquote, uh, in the machine believe that they are actually real. They don't know that they themselves are actually just constructions. So the the story becomes this sort of amazing investigation into what does it mean to be real? What does it mean to be really human? Uh, but it's all couched within this narrative about uh, an economic marketing firm, a marketing firm that is trying to test out how do we sell things better to to people. And so it seems like a very contemporary story. It's the use of virtual realities to test out marketing strategies. Uh, I won't give the whole plot away because it's really a wonderful story. And it was actually, um, the narrative was made into a recent film uh, from probably about recent, eh, 10 years ago called 13th Floor, which is a wonderful science fiction film. Uh, And uh, the film does a good updating of the original narrative. But what I really appreciated about this story was that it was a reminder that even when we create amazing technologies, such as virtual reality, there are always going to be people who perhaps have created those technologies or intend to use those technologies to further particular economic goals. And so it's very hard for us, I think, to imagine the creation of new technologies without also thinking about economic realities and economic uh, imperatives and also sometimes military realities and military imperatives. And the internet itself began as a military uh, venue, as a military project. Uh, And we've been able to turn it to a lot of, not just economic good and economic uh, diversification, uh, we've also turned it into good social organization, political organization. We've also turned it into a lot of surveillance uh, and a lot of algorithms that that are constantly trying to, to sell you things. So our technologies, for all that we imagine them as 
potentially bringing us good things and different ways of thinking about what it means to be human, different ways of being just and equitable and forward thinking and progressive. They're also always going to be used uh, within the current economic order and the current military and governmental order for other ends as well. Right. I'm so surprised that there was a novel like that written in the 50s. It sounds so Black Mirror. It sounds like something that (laughs) could be totally happening today. And in fact, you know, they already do use our data to sell us things in so many ways. Absolutely. Actually, Simulacron 3 is a very Black Mirror kind of uh, narrative. And it just goes to show you that these are issues that are, are... Uh, not just contemporary. Uh, Our capitalist culture, uh, capitalist-infused culture, has been grappling with the issues of what does it mean to exist in a capitalist society for quite some time. So our art, our popular culture, our narratives really have been showing us and mirroring back to us, hopefully not just the the blackness or the direness of our situation, uh, but hopefully ways that can prompt us to think about changing it or imagining a more socially just and economically equitable future. And going off that, um, as we approach so much that has been written in science fiction Mm. in our reality, um, do you think the genre is changing? You know, it's a great question. I I think it is changing. And what's been great to see in contemporary science fiction is the ways in which it is grappling with a broader fan base, a more diverse fan base, and really trying to understand how different groups of people, uh, sometimes people that have not been thought of as part of the larger science fiction fan community, how, how different uh, identities, different communities actually have a lot to say about, about the future. And it's it, it's been good. When I, when I pick up older science fiction, uh, I'm actually rereading a, a book right now by Poole Anderson called Tales of the Flying Mountains, which is about the colonization of the solar system uh, and uh, an attempt to move beyond the solar system. So if, you, if you've been watching The Expanse, for instance, this is, this is a book written half a century ago that really is about the exact same narrative as The Expanse, which itself, by the way, is a science fiction series really invested in economic relations. Uh, but Anderson, writing half a century ago, really only imagines white people sitting around a table and trying to figure out what does the future look like. And there, and there are some walk-on roles by, by non-white folks, but it's mostly white people, mostly white men. And so contemporary science fiction is much more cognizant of the fact that white men inhabit the world with a lot of other people, <laughs> with many, many different kinds of people. And it's been great to see how feminist science fiction and how people of color have not only embraced science fiction as a way to imagine the future, but also to use it to critique contemporary structures of inequality. Definitely. And uh, what contemporary science fiction works uh, would you recommend that really um, have some interesting things to say about economics and society? Well, I've already mentioned The the Expanse, which is based on a series of books by James S.A. Corey, uh, which is a pseudonym for, for two uh, people who write under that name. And the, and the books and the TV series are really remarkable for uh, showing us how an a contemporary inability to grapple with issues of inequality will continue to perpetrate itself into the future. And that what we need to do is really recognize 
all of the different ways in which right now we are continuing to support structures uh, at the governmental level, corporate and capitalist levels that don't treat people fairly, that don't actually promote economic justice or economic equality or even even uh, access, economic access. We'd like to believe that we live in a society of meritocracy where with enough hard work you can you can achieve, but we know that that is really very difficult and not everybody has the exact same level of access to economic prosperity. And so figuring out now by looking at the future, by looking at our imagination of the future, we have an opportunity in a show like The Expanse to reflect on, well, what do we want to change right now that might actually make the future a little bit better? Uh, we see these things and not only in science fiction, but also in young adult fiction that has a science fiction gloss, such as The Hunger Games, which I think remains more relevant than ever before in terms of how different parts of us, of even our contemporary society, uh, are treated differently depending upon the economic value that they are able to contribute. Uh, and so in many ways, all of these works what science fiction often does is just extrapolate. It makes, it, it takes some of the basic building blocks of contemporary society and exaggerates them so that we can see them a little, a little bit more clearly. Yeah, Hunger Games is one of my favorite um, YA novels. I would say people really um, don't see how it's more political satire than romance. Honestly. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. So how did you go about the process of um, collecting these essays with your um, three other editors? So the, the four of us were uh, the primary folks involved in putting on the conference a couple of years ago. And like I said, we had such a good experience at the conference, just meeting different people. Uh, some folks had flown in from all over the country to actually talk with us about uh, science fiction. And we just had such a good time building rapport with folks that we thought, this would be a great opportunity to see if there is a collection, if there is an actual publication we can get out of it, especially given how so many of the folks working on science fiction at the conference were also thinking about issues of economics. Uh, and it's been great to work with Greg Benford, who is a, a wonderful science fiction writer. He was professor of physics here. He's now retired. Uh, uh, from UCI, uh, but he's one of the, the country's foremost writers of what's called hard science fiction, uh, and he's someone who's been a delight to work with, and uh, we've looked for an opportunity to be able to partner on various projects, and, and it was great working with him and also with Howard and Gary on, on putting together this collection out of that conference, and we hope it will continue to spark other conversations. So the whole collection of essays is about how um, how the economy has affected science fiction stories. Do you think that science fiction has also affected the economy? <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, one of, one of the, the truisms about science fiction is that it's often imagined different kinds of technologies, you know, from satellites, et cetera, to, to even, even in some ways iPhones. Well, I won't say iPhones in particular, but, but sort of these mobile technologies that actually inspire people to create these things. So uh, science fiction obviously gets some things wrong. And it, it's interesting to read older science fiction that fails to imagine certain things that have actually come to pass. But definitely science fiction 
is important for helping folks imagine not only technologies, but ways of being in the world, ways of existing with each other that absolutely have economic impact. And so I think especially right now, I just can't help but imagine that there are young people, hopefully young, young women, who are reading science fiction and thinking, huh, the world the world that I'm growing up in, the world that I'm living in is, is a little scary. Its future is uncertain. But this fiction helps me imagine a future, one that I want to move towards, one, one that I want to help build. And that inevitably will have consequences uh, for economics and for the development of technologies, but also just for the development of different kinds of communities. It's so important, especially right now, that science fiction is being embraced by a diverse set of readers because those diverse readers are increasingly seeing themselves in science fiction. And I think that that helps give people hope. Uh, the Marxist theorist Ernst Bloch says that one of the most important elements for thinking about the future is going to be the cultivation of a sense of hope. And I think science fiction is one of the genres, one of the major genres of storytelling we have right now that because of its orientation to the future and its imagination of different ways of being in the world actually can give people hope. Hope for rebuilding, hope for reorganizing, hope for just creating different ways of, of connecting, communing, uh, bartering, trading, <laughs> doing all of the things that we need to do to create the kind of lives that will be sustainable and hopefully co uh, contribute to our thriving as a species in a just relationship with the planet. Very well said. I certainly hope so as well. Um, in the introduction to the book, um, it mentions how some science fiction authors create new economic systems mm. for their worlds. Mm -hmm. uh, could you talk more about that? Sure. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of interesting experimentation that sometimes goes on in science fiction. I, I'd already mentioned Star Trek, you know, which tries to imagine what would a post-money society possibly be like. Uh, one of the writers that I'm really interested in, uh, who I think is poised to make a comeback, is Mac Reynolds, uh, who wrote a number of novels throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And Reynolds was very committed to a Marxist approach, uh, and he very much believed that socialism and communism could offer us some different ways of not only organizing economic relations, but but sort of provoking people and prompting people to, to think about goals that are not just about capitalist accumulation, not just about greed, not just about you know, getting as much as you can, but contributing to a society. And Reynolds imagines technologies that would probably, at least he hoped, help to reduce the uh, the amount of labor that a lot of people have to undergo, and especially grueling, grinding labor that people are often subject to. And so it's a very utopianist uh, view in a lot of ways. Can we use our technologies uh, not to prompt people to buy more, but to actually do the kinds of labor that will free up people's time in order to pursue intellectual innovation or artistic uh, innovation? And I think that, that Reynolds definitely was trying very much to imagine the future a few hundred years from now, even a thousand years from now. And if we can get past the sort of kind of ethic or anti-ethic of capitalist accumulation, 
what would a more socialistically driven or communistically driven society actually allow people to do? And how would the species evolve and develop uh, in a more just and equitable way? So that's, that's one example of a science fiction writer who's absolutely trying to think through the ramifications of a different economic order that in his view would hopefully free people. But you also see this in a variety of other uh, uh, writers as well. Ursula Le Guin, the feminist science fiction writer, was very interested in the creation of communities that helped people imagine themselves a little bit differently and how they related to one another, uh, not just intimately, but also economically. So there are a lot of folks who over the last uh, century really have been trying to imagine those worlds. Wow. I could keep asking you about this for <laughs> probably another hour, but unfortunately we're out of time. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Sabelle. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, listeners, again, that was Dr. Jonathan Alexander, and the book is titled Science Fiction and the Dismal Science. It is available on Amazon and many other places, so there it is if you're interested. Um, this is KUCI 88.9 FM. Office Hours signing off. Listeners, stay safe, have a great day, and be kind to each other out there. Almost can grab it and head on out of this town If I had a done for every time that I thought of you I would be through Scraping for crumbs behind the sun You would be mine if I had died If I had a died You look at me I put my faith in something the eye Without a sign, let's steal away.